Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. I hope you're doing as well as possible in this very stressful time for our nation and the world. There's a lot of uncertainty, but we're here to try and answer your questions about college admissions and college success as best as we can in the changing landscape. For our, third, for our second and third segments, Shannon Vasconcelos, uh, college finance consultant here at College Coach, will be answering listener questions with me. So stick around for that. Um, but first, I'm welcoming Cassie Hemstrom. Cassie is a lecturer in the university writing program at UC Davis and teaches a variety of lower and upper division composition courses, including ex- expository writing, writing for business, and writing in the health sciences. So we'll be discussing how high school students can prepare for the rigors of college writing and touch a little on what students can do once they get to college if they are struggling. Hello, Cassie. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. And listen, I've given a little bit of background on you, but tell me about like how you became a writing instructor, professor, you know, what, what, uh, give us a sense of your background there. Oh, sure. Um, well, I went to graduate school for literature because that's what I thought I was most interested in. And along the way, I did a lot of teaching lower division introduction to writing classes. So um, writing one, composition one and two that every college offers. I taught those at Boise State University when I was getting my master's degree. And then when I was working on my PhD in literature at University of Nevada, Reno, um, I taught those as well. And I also had the opportunity to get involved a little bit more in the program itself in doing some some research, some collecting feedback to see what sorts of methods work the best to teach writing at a college level. And I found that that's what I really enjoyed was focusing on helping students to understand, you know, the importance that writing has to them in their life and helping them to gain confidence in writing and to be able to build some flexibility in writing so that they can take it out of the classroom and use it wherever they're going to go in the future, whether that's into you know graduate school or on into a career. So mm-hmm. that's what I ended up loving and that's what I ended up doing. And now I'm a lecturer at UC Davis mm-hmm. and I get to do that all the time. I think I really love it that, well, first of all, hopefully everyone acknowledges the importance of writing, but I feel like they don't always, you know, when I talk to students, like I loved it yeah. that you're teaching classes for business majors and health science majors as well. Um, Often, especially business majors, I find, and then also engineering majors are like, I don't really need to know how to write. I'm like, do you really think you don't need to know how to communicate? Because that's what writing is. And if you can't communicate, one of the things that I've noticed is I've seen people start in a field as like accountants or something like that, but it's the good communicators that get promoted. The people who know the basic skills but don't have a broader range of skills, they kind of get stuck at that entry level. So anyway, hoping you can address some of that. No, that's exactly what I notice again and again with students. And sometimes students will even tell me that they intentionally picked a major in the sciences or in um, accounting, like you mentioned, because they thought they wouldn't have to write. And unfortunately, those are some of the fields where you're going to be doing the most writing. Mm -hmm. You need to be communicating with your clients. You need to be writing reports. You need to be keeping track of um, proposals. So it's really that kind of unlearning of what is even writing is one of the places that I start because I think a lot of high school students get really used to writing a specific type of essay. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a great tool for learning how to do critical thinking. And it's a great tool for learning how to um, get a grasp on some of the, the preliminary concepts of writing. Right. How to have great writing structure, mm-hmm. how to have really good 
grasp of the, the grammar and the mechanics. But then once you're in college, you're going to be working on writing in so many different types of situations. Mm-hmm. And that realization is, I think, a, a really big turning moment for a lot of students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked at University of Chicago and there they had a course that they offered to seniors, a writing course specifically for now you have to learn this whole different kind of writing, yeah. you know, and it, it's got to be easier to understand. And I thought that was so positive that an institution that, frankly, I loved it, but can be a little hidebound, let's just say, kind <laughs> of ivory tower, just a little bit, right? right? Or let's just say really a lot, but that they had this practical approach. They were like, okay, we think we've given you these great critical thinking skills. Now, how do you communicate to people out sort of so to, in the real world, so to speak? Right. Um, yeah. And, on, and I'll just say, by the way, that at our job, we look, we're always looking to hire people and we've had to turn people away who were impressive in every single aspect other than writing. Yeah. And that was the one reason we couldn't hire them. Yeah. And I hear that over and over and over again. You know, I, I actually helped to run um, an internship program for our professional writing minors. And one of the things that they're able to do is get hands-on opportunities to learn from professionals in the field, how to do the types of writing that they're going to need to do in their careers, in their um, academic discipline. And they, have such a strong advantage over people who don't have those strong writing communication skills mm-hmm. once they get out onto the job market or even applying for graduate school because it's it's just a completely different world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. All right, so now that hopefully we've convinced people <laughs> that writing <laughs> is important, um, how do they prepare in high school? Like what kinds of skills are going to be necessary? What sort of preparation? I mean, obviously do what your English teacher and your teachers in general ask you, but what are some tips that you have? Well, I think the most important thing is not being afraid of writing and not having a preconceived notion that there's only one right way to write. You have to be able to start thinking about how do you write differently in different types of situations. So when you're writing in your English class, what are some of the things that you're doing that are making you successful in writing in that English class that maybe then you can turn into the types of writing that you're doing outside of school? If you're putting together a college application, what's going to be different about that type of writing than the writing that you're doing for your English class? And one of the things is to think about audience. Who, is, who am I writing this to? What's my purpose in trying to write this particular piece of paper? And also think about all the different ways in which you're creating and writing that you may not count as writing. Maybe you're a really good writer when you're not thinking of yourself as a academic writer. Maybe you're a really great writer when you're writing emails to your grandparents, when you're writing really hilarious short texts on um, on Twitter to your friends, you know, and thinking about how you can take skills from one section to other sections of your life is going to make you a much stronger student when you get into high school. Another thing you can do is read and write a lot. And that's, that's just really important. And don't try to aim to be the best writer in the world. Writers make mistakes. Writers mm-hmm. do terrible drafts. You know, it's it's all a process and getting comfortable with that process is a really helpful thing to do once you're in college because you're going to be needing to write all sorts of different things. You're going to have to write a timed essay that is, you know, a five paragraph type timed essay for a class, but then you're also going to be having to put together a eight to 10 page paper that you have worked on throughout the whole year. And that takes a totally different set of skills. Mm -hmm. I think the point about the audience is a really good one too. I mean, I'm always talking about that with students when I work with them on their college admission essay, you know, this is not your English teacher. You don't need a formal introduction. And in fact, the tone should be conversational. I've had to like really push back against parents too, who want a business kind of writing. You know, they're, they sort of want like, well, our third quarter reports have been very strong. You know, they kind of (laughs) want to like, and I'm like, no, that's not what this is about. And 
The colleges yeah. are going to see the transcript. They don't need to address the grades. This is about something different, you know. Um, so the audience is so important, mm -hmm. I think. And I, I get though that it's pretty challenging because a lot of the students that I work with have never done any kind of writing other than writing an expository essay. So right. how do you think they get, I mean, you mentioned just having them do writing, like what are ways they might gain some of that flexibility? Yeah. So you might try just for yourself, taking on some creative projects in different types of areas. If you're really passionate about something, start a blog. Mm -hmm. Start writing some blog posts about it and mm -hmm. see what sorts of things monitor re the reactions from your audience, right? Mm -hmm. So take, take um, if you're really into baseball, start writing a monthly blog post and sharing it even just on your social media with your friends and seeing what sorts of things resonate with your audience. And mm -hmm. you can get that reaction in real time. This is something that we didn't have when we were growing up and yeah. becoming writers. <laughs> <laughs> but this generation of college students has that opportunity to get immediate feedback and engagement and see what sorts of things really work to pull their audiences in. Mm -hmm. So, and even if it's an Instagram post, you know, you can vary up the different types of descriptions, play around with the wording and see what sorts of things get your audience to engage with you more. Mm -hmm. And by bringing, it's a critical lens, right? It's thinking critically about your own writing. Mm -hmm. And then you can, see what things work for you and what things don't work for you. And just by being more critical in your writing, you're going to be able to make better writing decisions in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Be willing to edit. Don't just always yeah. use the same, the first thing that comes out on the page, I think oh, is, yeah. is already huge. When you send an email to an old person like me, because none of my students <laughs> use email, except for, for me, because I make them, okay. um, you know, use edit it make sure you use proper language use learn how to do that that's really going to help you so. yeah that's that's the first assignment i teach in my business writing courses is how to write a strong targeted cold email to someone who you'd like to form a network connection with in your field mm -hmm. because it's incredibly crucial that's going to be three-fourths of most jobs is email writing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh for sure yeah. And believe me, they're not going to be going towards Instagram anytime soon, people. So you need to, <laughs> you need to go with what you, what, what's, you know, there's going to be plenty of people my age when you uh, graduate from college. Um, so what will students be expected to do? Like, let's kind of, we've talked a lot about how to be successful in business and general communications, but what do students need mm -hmm. to do to be successful once they get to college in their writing? So you need to be able to follow directions. You need to be able to look at the writing situation that you're being asked to do. And hopefully for most of the writing situations in college, you're going to have either an assignment sheet that tells you really specifically what you're writing for and what type of writing that should be, what genre it is, what the format should be, and who your audience and purpose is, right? And that's something that may not be explicitly stated on your assignment sheet, but by looking at your assignment sheet with a critical lens, you can usually figure those things out to see mm -hmm. for yourself, okay, what, what are the things I need to do here to succeed in responding appropriately to this writing situation? Mm -hmm. um, so that means that you can't just take down notes during class on what the teacher is talking about. You really have to look at the assignment sheet itself. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes you don't have a really great assignment sheet. And that's when I come to point number two is talk to your teachers. And that can be really intimidating. College is a big, scary place. And depending on if you're at, you know, a giant university that does a lot of research or if you're at a small liberal arts college, it could be very different what your interactions are going to be with your, with your lecturers or with your professors. But all of your professors are going to have office hours and almost all of them are going to really want to engage with you. Mm -hmm. Most professors became professors because they love working with students. So go and talk to your professors. And the, it doesn't have to be a long conversation. It can just be pop in during their office hours and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing for this assignment. Does that sound okay? Mm -hmm. um, and even just opening that door a little bit so that you can ask for more advice, more guidance. Pay attention in class. And get a really good peer group with your classmates as well so that you can do some rough drafts with your classmates. If you don't have a formal way to do it in your class, most writing classes are going to include some sort of rough draft workshopping 
where you can sketch out a draft and then look over it with some other people who are working on that same project, but you're not going to have that in a science class, right? Mm -hmm. So being able to form small groups of your friends who are also in the same boat or even other classmates, most schools also have writing centers, taking advantage of those writing centers where you can go in and have a student who's been trained to do writing workshops with you sit down and take a look at your work. And it's not a critical sort of situation, right? It's not somewhere where they're sitting down, they're saying, oh, you did this wrong and this wrong. They're there to help you take something that's a draft to be in a really polished final end product. So take Mm -hmm. advantage of all of those services that are available and take advantage of your friend group and give yourself time too. Don't try and get in a big project the night before. I've done that. (laughs) We've all done that. But you're going to be much happier and it's going to be a much easier process if you just give yourself some time, start with some brainstorming, start with a very rough draft where you don't have really high expectations for yourself and then Mm -hmm. workshop it and keep working on it. If you're doing research, you might need to revisit your research a couple of times throughout the process. You might need to do some initial research, write a draft, see what else you need to learn more about, and then revise that research and revise the draft. Mm -hmm. All right. All great advice. And I, I just want to stress because this was me, like I didn't, realize that I should just be doing these things, even if I wasn't sure I was messing up, you know, like I really like, I mean, the, my first draft of my first paper was fine. And the professor was very like all about helping us with that first draft, you know, but why not go to the writing center? Even if you're afraid to go to the professor initially, because you're intimidated, Mm -hmm. just go to the writing center. Even if you think your paper's good, go to the writing center, get a second opinion. This is not something that should wait until a crisis moment. Get in the habit of doing it right off the bat. And that's how you're really going to be learning as well, I think. Yes, absolutely. And building up those good skills is incredibly crucial from when you get into the job market and you want to be able to do these things on your own. When you're working with a team, almost all business writing, almost all science writing is going to be collaborative anyway. So having the skills to workshop drafts with other people, um, taking advantage of opportunities for group work in school to kind of play around with different approaches to that group work and see what group work works best. Those are going to be incredibly useful skills that you can put on your resume and then use to get, you know, really successful in your job. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. I think it's really good advice for students on a topic that frankly, students and parents don't think enough about. So (laughs) it's, it's one of the most useful skills you can get. And I have students write Every every week I get a, a student email from a former student telling me that my class and the skills they learned are things that they're still using five, 10 years down the road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. So now we'll be taking a short break. But when we return, Shannon Vesconcelos and I will be answering listener questions. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, Shannon and I will be answering listener questions. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Sally. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Good, good. All right. So let's let's dive in. We got a lot of listener questions and there's some pretty thorny ones, too. So <laughs> there are. <laughs> it's our lucky day. Yes, indeed. <laughs> exactly. All right. So this first question comes in from Heba, I believe it's pronounced, um, came in through our Facebook page. So just a reminder to folks, if you do have any questions, feel free to just send us a message on Facebook and we'll try to get to them on the show. Uh, But Heba says, hello, I hope you are doing well. Thank you. Same to you. Um, I would love to ask some questions related to getting into the Ivy League or MIT. Oh, that's easy. Right. (laughs) We can help with that for sure. Yeah. No problem. Um, Personally, I'm interested in medical studies and I would love to get into Harvard Medical School. Again, a challenging task, but we'll see what we can do here. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is that I'm still a high school student. I'm a senior next year, which means that I'll graduate with the 2021 class. I study in Morocco and the educational system is mainly similar to the French one but kind of different compared to the one in the U.S. I would like to know how a foreign student can apply to such universities and if I should take any exams or tests to evaluate my level before getting into college. Thank you in advance. Take care and stay safe. Again, same to you, Hiba. And I don't know if we've had a question from Morocco before. This is Yeah, I don't think we have. I mean, the good news is that um, American universities are very used to the French system, to the baccalaureate system. So if it's the same basic system, they're going to be familiar with it, even if they haven't already had applications from Morocco, which frankly would be surprising. I mean, I think there's applications from most countries. When I worked at, you know, Reed College and Whittier College, which are not as well known, we still had applications from all over the world. So, um, so I wouldn't worry too much about your system, um, you know, about it being known. Now, in terms of general advice, I did want to mention also that we have a show, we had a show on February 26th, 2020 that was all about applying to the U.S. as an international student. So um, do want to point you to that because you're going to get a more in-depth answer. But in terms of the tests, do try and take the SAT or ACT and SAT subject tests. Um, In a normal year, I would say you must take the SAT subject tests and the SAT. I still think a lot of the um, schools like, and we're going to be getting into COVID-19 more Soon, but a lot of those schools have gone testing optional. Um, schools like I think Harvard and Yale. I mean, a lot of the most selective colleges. Um, that being said, I think it's going to be. I don't know. They're generally speaking, they're not comfortable as comfortable with international students going test optional, is what I've noticed. So, if at all possible, you need to try and take at least the SAT or the ACT, and then ideally, again, if possible, if it isn't, it isn't. Um, try and take SAT subject tests. You're going to need at least two, um, you know, and and take them in the subjects that you're strongest in, like where you're going to be taking your IB exam is probably going to be ideal places. And you can go to the collegeboard.org to look up those exams. I want to stress though, too, this isn't your question, but I want to like back up um, and address the assumption that to get into Harvard Medical School, you have to go to Harvard undergrad or an Ivy undergrad or MIT. That is 100% not the case. I have sent students um, who've gone to schools that are at the most selective level. I have sent students to schools that were far less selective. And at all different levels, you see students getting into those top medical schools. A student of mine who actually went to Yale, then from there went on to Stanford Medical School. I was very happy for her. I looked at the announcement and it showed all the other members of her class. And there were multiple students who had gone to Arizona State, which I thought was great. Now, Arizona State has a top-notch honors college. I'm 100% positive that those students were in the honors college. But, um, you know, it's, it's not, even the honors college is not Harvard. But what happened is that those students went to that school that is not as selective and really distinguish themselves. So that's what really matters. Certainly, you know, go to a school where you will distinguish yourself, do research um, as an undergraduate, 
Um, you know, make sure they have a good pre-med advising committee, but don't worry about going to a big name if you want to go to a top medical school. You just need to go distinguish yourself wherever you are. So I just really want to push back on that assumption. Um, the other thing I'd say, by the way, though, is that there's also other good medical schools beyond Harvard Medical School. <laughs> um, it's okay if you want to have that as your goal, but I would really broaden things out a lot. <laughs> I think I think that's yeah. going to be your best idea. I know. Yeah, I had the the same thought, wondering maybe Kiba has done his or her research, you know, very well and decided that these are the best schools for him. But I wonder if it's just because it's, these are the most well-known schools that are known worldwide. Mm -hmm. uh, and he may not be as familiar with some of the um, less brand name schools here in mm -hmm. the U.S. that could also do a fabulous job of educating. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. University of Pittsburgh Medical School, top notch, just throwing that out there as one example. Maybe not everybody's yeah. heard Check of it, it but it's a great place. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'll go ahead and answer, ask your question now. Okay. This is from Jonathan and um, he writes, love your podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, we fall in the middle while we won't qualify for financial aid because we live in New York City. We will need unsubsidized student and parent plus loans to pay for college. So does that mean we say no to financial aid on the application, but fill out the FAFSA for aid? deadline or after acceptance so i guess does he, yeah. he fill it out on time or yeah you know? yeah i think that's the question yeah so i would say i think that you're right jonathan that that you should say on the admissions application that you are not applying for financial aid the loan programs you mentioned aren't really financial aid they're more like financing options they're not need-based aid programs um, so I think it's perfectly legitimate that you say no I'm not applying for financial aid on the admissions application um, and then in terms of the timing of when to do the FAFSA I think the safest best uh, assuming you are confident that you will not qualify for any need-based aid is in fact to wait until you've already been accepted to the school. And there's a lot of caveats here. So first of all, before making that decision, number one, fill out net price calculators on all the, the websites of all the schools you're considering to confirm that you won't qualify for need-based financial aid. Um, because if you will qualify for need-based aid, you want to apply on time for mm -hmm. sure. Um, the other thing you'd wanna check is if any of the colleges your child is applying to requires the FAFSA be considered for any merit scholarships. It's a pretty rare policy, but there are some schools that do. So again, if it's needed for merit scholarships, you want to apply on time. So assuming you've checked those two things off the list, the FAFSA isn't needed for merit, you're really not going to qualify for need-based aid. Then the, the issue and why I'm saying you might want to wait till later on in the process is if a college practices need-aware admissions. That's that's kind of the, the question that I think Jonathan is leading to. I, I think Jonathan is one of our regular listeners, and I think that he's, he's aware of, of the fact that, that colleges can be need-blind, where they won't take into account the fact that you may or may not need financial aid when they're making their admissions decisions, or they could be need-aware, where they reserve the right to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that you're applying for financial aid could, uh, at some need-aware schools, in some circumstances, uh, hurt your admissions applications. Um, so for that reason, I'm saying you maybe want to wait till you've already been accepted. Um, now, it, it could be at many, many schools, it would be just fine to just apply for admission saying you're not applying for financial aid, check that box, go ahead and submit the FAFSA, and you're still fine in terms of their need-aware admissions process. They're just looking at that checkbox. Um, at other schools, and I've, I've heard this advice before, I think I've probably given this advice in the past, um, you can check off not applying for financial aid, file the FAFSA, uh, and then just send it like an email in saying, just so you know, I just filed the FAFSA to get these loans. And I probably should have mentioned that earlier. The FAFSA is required to get the couple of non-need-based loans he mentioned. Um, so that, that's why there's any issue at all. Uh, and that is probably fine at most even need-aware schools. If you send that email in, they know for sure you're not looking for their institutional aid. And so again, you're fine in their need-aware admissions process. You're considered uh, a full-pay student. Um, so 
doing either of those things is probably fine at most places, but I've just kind of done this enough and talked to, you know, all of our colleagues at College Coach who have worked at dozens and dozens of colleges across the country. I know enough now to know that every school does it a little bit differently and looks at different things. And there may be some schools where even if you check the right box and even if you send in an email, maybe just by filing the FAFSA, that puts you into that category that puts you at a disadvantage uh, at some need-aware schools. So I think kind of the most conservative, safest option, if you're worried, if you're applying to need-aware schools and you're worried about this aid application hurting you, check off saying that you're not applying for aid and don't file the FAFSA uh, until you've already been accepted. So you know for sure that it won't hurt you. Um, the unsubsidized direct loan, the direct plus loan are, um, are loans that do not require you to be on time. It's basically unlimited money. It never runs out. You could apply, you know, halfway through the school year and still get those loans. So you don't have to worry about being on time for those particular non-need-based loan programs. Again, though, if you might qualify for aid, if it's required for merit, though, then make sure you do the FAFSA on time, you know, come what may in terms of the admissions process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really, really do want to stress because I've run into so many myths that... Yes. If a school says they're need blind, they're need blind. They're need blind. Right. I worked at Chicago. We were need blind. Like we didn't care. In fact, we had enough money that we were like, oh, good. It's a full need student. I mean, it was like oh, someone to spend our money on. Yeah. Socioeconomic diversity, you know? So, yeah. so don't um, mind. Okay. Now I can see people going like, well, should we apply for aid? Like to make it <laughs> right. seem like it, we're adding diversity. <laughs> Please don't do that. But I'm just saying, if the school says they're need blind, then you can they trust are. them and submit that application. If they don't say that or they hem and haw, absolutely follow Shannon's advice. <laughs> right. Exactly right. If, if all you need is loans, um, if you want. Excellent grant, point, Ellie. Yes, pretty. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can find. So if you, I would check the school's websites, all the schools that your child's going to apply to, and if they say need blind, exactly like Sally said, mm -hmm. they are need blind. So don't worry about it. But if you find them not saying that they're need blind, that probably means they're need aware. Mm -hmm. And that's when you exactly. may have the issue. Okay, Sally. So the next question for you comes from Christine, submitted through uh, our Instagram page. So we, we have a brand new Instagram, brand new, about a year old Instagram account. So if you're not following us yet at College Coach BH, make sure you follow us and you can send us questions there. But Christine asks, with all of the uncertainty nowadays, will early action and early decision be even more valuable this year? What about applying early decision to a highly selective school that has gone test optional for 2021 with no test score if you have a high GPA? Um, what going on there? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> so first of all, um, honestly, the question is we just don't know for sure yet. Um, I mean, in general, I think applying early decision and early action is going to be valuable and you can anticipate that it will continue to be valuable uh, in terms of giving you a boost to get in. Um, but, you know, colleges don't know the answers to these questions yet either. So this is what's very hard. Um, with corona, um, you know, colleges don't know if they're going to be in person. They don't know how many students are going to apply. They've got students taking leave, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, in general, I think early decision probably is, might be even a little bit more helpful. I don't want you to overstate that, though. I mean, I noticed that the second part is applying ED to a highly selective that has gone test optional with no test score. If you have a GPA, I still I want to be clear that even now, um, Harvard is not going to be taking a 3.5. Like they're just that's it doesn't like these, these actually, these um, highly selective schools tend to be the schools that have enough money to get through this, right? So early decision is actually going to make a much bigger difference at a school that is more tuition-driven, which does yes. not include the Ivies, which are largely not tuition-driven. I think none of them are at this point. I think maybe a few of them were when I started in admissions, a little bit more so. So don't like, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer and I know that's what I'm doing, but like, don't get your hopes up and say, this is the year I'm going to get into Stanford. Because uh, that being said, if you are a very strong student, um, yeah, this is the year there, some of these schools are test optional. However, I want to be clear, it's not, um, it's not enough to have a high GPA. Like I'd recommend going back and kind of listening to our shows there too. You have to have taken the most rigorous curriculum. You have to have 
the best grades in those. You have to have really exceptional extracurricular accomplishments. Uh, the demands there, I think, are going to be a little lower this year because a lot of students would have been doing some pretty cool things over the summer. And, you know, let's face it, a lot of plans were shut down. But in general, you still are going to have to be truly exceptional. One of the things that I tell to students is look around at your high school. Um, if you go to just a typical good high school, are you not only at the top of your class in terms of GPA, but really kind of exceptional in terms of the accomplishments that you have? If you can't honestly say that, if you're honestly kind of thinking, I'm in the top 10%, I'm strong, but I'm not like exceptional within my high school, then it, these colleges are still going to be a reach, like not just a reach, but really highly unlikely. However, if you really are exceptional within your high school, you're one of those students where everybody's like, wow, this kid is amazing. Like, how do you do it all? Then, you know, if the only thing holding you back is a test score, then this might actually be your year. Like that actually might be the case. So, but keep in mind that no test score doesn't mean it's going to be easier to get in. It just means there's going to be even more focus on the other academic elements of the application. So if you take an exam and you do well in it, it is absolutely going to be to your advantage to submit it. And I can't stress that enough. So. All right, so um, we'll do one more question before the break. Okay, okay so this is from Carrie. Um, my son received a number of financial aid offers, but was not awarded any financial aid besides a small student loan. We don't want to take on any debt for college. Do we have any other options? Yeah, so this is a situation where I wish I had a whole lot more info from Carrie, but essentially, if you didn't receive financial aid, you don't want to take on student loans essentially means paying out of pocket for the most part. So do you have that money? Can you look at what do you have in savings? <laughs> can, you, can you stretch that out? Um, what could, might you be able to pay on a monthly payment plan to the school that, that most colleges do in fact offer? So to take a look at your monthly budget, figure out if you can budget to pay the tuition bill that way. Um, you can, in fact, ask for more financial aid. Um, so you can appeal to the financial aid office, say, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure if I can swing this, explain any special circumstances you have, ask them for more. Um, schools have been more forthcoming um, throughout this kind of spring with more money because of all the uncertainty, I think, trying to fill their classes. Uh, I don't think that will last forever, but it never hurts to ask. <laughs> so you could ask for more aid. Mm -hmm. um, there are outside scholarships you could apply for, you know, check in with your school guidance uh, counseling website that might list local scholarships. Scholarships.com is a good web search. Those, you can't count on those uh, private scholarships for tons of money, though. So I think it's essentially, for the most part, looking at your budget, looking at your savings, your cash flow, seeing if you can swing things on a payment plan. The other thing I'll just say very briefly that the, the CARES Act did provide new flexibilities with tapping into a 401k. Um, for this year, uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. In all likelihood, you're going to need that money for your retirement. I would not mm -hmm. tap it to pay for college, except in very, very rare circumstances where you've overfunded your retirement accounts. Um, so it's essentially looking at your budget, figuring out if you can swing it. And of course, if this particular school your child wants to attend is, does not fit within that budget and you don't want to borrow, of course, it's looking at less expensive options. And that might be the local community college for a couple of years. It might be if the school you're wanting is a private school, maybe looking at the four-year public school. Um, so there are certainly options, uh, but it's just kind of taking a look at your budget and figuring out what you can swing there. You might be able to appeal for a little more aid, maybe pull in a couple of private scholarships, but they're not going to make a huge difference in all likelihood. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going to take a short break now. And uh, when I come back, when we come back, Shannon and I will be answering more questions. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. 
We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Shannon and I are still here answering your questions. So, Shannon, I think it was your turn to ask me a question. Absolutely. And this question came in from Susan uh, on our Facebook page. And she she kind of broke it up into two questions, though I think that they're kind of related. Uh, so one, we have noticed that many colleges tie written merit scholarship policies to unweighted GPA. Should I have had my child take gym and typing instead of AP and honors? At many <laughs> private schools, we would have been offered more money up front. And then two, my junior overcommitted to multiple AP and honors classes, including doubling up on science. What is the best way to explain a lower junior year GPA with difficult classes? Okay. So I'll start with the first question. Um, Unfortunately, it is true that there are some schools that do not look at a weighted GPA, right? That being said, there are a lot of colleges where if you don't take those AP or honors courses, you're not competitive in the first place. So if you decide not to take those classes, you're really like eliminating the sort of entire group of the most selective colleges in the country. So it sort of depends on what your priority is. For some some people, maybe the priority is a school like Whittier, which I worked at and I loved. I can highly, highly recommend it. And, you know, at least back when I was there, I don't know what's going on now. The scholarships were based on the unweighted GPA. That said, applications still had to go through a faculty committee. So, um, you know, if anybody was like looked weak at all, I mean, in other words, a student who took gym and typing and didn't take any rigorous courses is not getting into e- to, to even a school that is more moderately selective like Whittier. So I can't stress that enough. The other thing, too, is do you really want to eliminate even the possibility of getting into a more selective college by not taking any of those classes? But I think you're running up against something that is probably parents' biggest struggle, which is what is the balance here? So our general advice is it is worth it to take an AP or an honors course if you can get a B in it. But if you're taking a schedule that's so rigorous that even though you might be able to get a B in that one class, when all those classes together are overwhelming, all your grades are going to drop, that is obviously not what we recommend. That's not worth it. So how do you figure that out, though? That's the tough part. Well, students should talk to their friends, you know, try and find students who see all of these questions um, and then talk to the teachers. What are what are the expectations that you have as a teacher for me? And then compare that to the extracurricular activities that you have. You probably just won't have time to do everything. Most students don't. So then my recommendation is pick your strongest class, take the AP in that class, right? Or your strongest class is, but you do need to kind of like think carefully about it. And that to me is the best way to sort of um, prepare for all potential eventualities. See what your kid can do, challenge them, um, but don't overwhelm them. The other thing too, that I would say is remember, it's not just about getting into college. It's also about preparing for college. I mean, I talk to people all the time, who like they want to be doctors. And then they say, well, I don't know if I should take physics. I don't think I'll get a very good grade. And then I say, well, when you get to college, you're going to have to take physics. It's required when you apply to medical school. So if you don't take it, you're going to be behind all the other students who have already taken it. So remember that preparation is really, really important as well. So I just want to say, definitely don't just take gym and typing, but do try and take a balanced or measured approach. Um, so I think, and then with the second part of the question, it, it, 
does sound like he did overcommit, probably didn't do as well. And yeah, doubling up on science is very stressful. That's the kind of thing, by the way, that students really don't have to do. I mean, some students do it. They want to double up on science. And if you're trying to get into the most selective colleges, that can certainly be a positive, but it's not a necessary. So I just want to stress that if you're at all worried, do not double up. Um, take one, take um, all of the five core subjects, including foreign language, uh, or world language, but you don't need to double up if you're concerned about how rigorous the course load is. Um, and then what is the best way to explain a lower junior year GPA with difficult classes? Honestly, it's gonna be pretty obvious to the colleges. I mean, what you've just described to me is something that we see all the time. And it's gonna be really obvious to them when they look at the transcript that with that jump in the junior year, his grade suffered. So unless you have, um, you certainly could address it if something else happened too. Like, did he get mono? Did he, um, you know, I mean, there, there are potentially ways to address it. You could talk to a school counselor who might be able to address it. Maybe some of the teachers are notoriously challenging and only two students get A's in the class and five students get B's. You know, those kinds of things can be addressed. But if it's just, you know, the curriculum ended up being too challenging for him and he overcommitted, that's something that the colleges are going to be able to understand just by a careful evaluation of the transcript. And that's, that's really how that works. So yeah. I'm sorry, I'm probably not the answer that you wanted from me, but. <laughs> um, Sometimes so. we have to deliver the bad news too. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I, this is one of these moments when I feel like a dream killer. So, <laughs> all right. Um, so on to the next question from Grace. Yes. Okay. Um, we got five financial aid award letters from five different colleges. Some have a federal plus on them and some don't. The college my daughter wants to attend did not offer a plus loan. Can we ask them to reconsider? Yes. Yeah, so I would say, um, and honestly, probably this, Grace is probably already committed to a certain college at this point. I think this, <laughs> this question yeah. came in a, a little bit ago. But what I would tell anyone in this situation ignore whether or not the PLUS loan was awarded to you on a financial aid award letter. It does not matter if it is there or not. Um, this is, I talked about a little bit in the previous um, segment that the direct PLUS loan is a loan for parents to borrow, and it is really a financing option more than financial aid. Um, Colleges do different things with their financial aid award letters. Um, some of them just award you the actual need-based aid that you qualify for and will show sort of a gap. You know, our school costs $50,000. We've awarded you $10,000. You're short $40,000. Um, or they make you do that math. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't look like my costs are covered here. Um, other schools kind of try and hide the fact that there may be a big gap there by awarding you this federal plus loan, which is a loan that parents can apply for. Um, so it is not guaranteed. Be so it kind of works both ways because you don't see a plus loan on an award package doesn't mean you can't get it. If you see one on an award package, that doesn't actually mean it's guaranteed for you. It's actually a credit-based loan. The first step is filing the FAFSA. That kind of gets you in the running, but then you actually have to apply for the loan. They do a credit check. You may or may not be approved for the plus loan. So just because it's there doesn't mean you can actually borrow it because you do have to pass the credit check. And if it's not there, that's a-okay. All you have to do is ask for it. Um, so in the fine print or on their website, the, the financial aid office will explain exactly how to apply for a PLUS loan. You go to a, the government website and fill out an application. They run the credit check. So that you can do that at any college. The only limitations on the PLUS loan, you, know, you do have to be a U.S. citizen or permanent resident. You can't have defaulted on other types of um, student aid, and um, you have to be able to pass the credit check. But whether or not it's on the award letter makes no difference. So if the school, Grace, that your child wants to attend um, did not award you a PLUS loan, that's fine. Just ask the financial aid office or check out their website, how do I apply for a PLUS loan? You can still get it as long as you can pass the credit check. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the next question for you, Sally, is from Todd. And Todd asks, do colleges that practice need-blind admissions generally practice that in regards to transfer students? 
Uh, same question in regards to colleges that pledge to meet 100% of demonstrated need. Do they generally practice that with transfer students as well? So based on the examples that I have, um, the answer is yes. Um, for if it's need blind, it's need blind for both. Um, in terms of colleges that pledge to meet 100% of demonstrated need, do they generally practice that with transfer students? That seems a little trickier. I mean, transfer students, in all honesty, at the schools that I worked at were kind of at the bottom of the barrel. It was just whatever money was left over. You know, like I at Reed right. had a scholarship and that partially funded. And so the student who got that scholarship was always funded. And then like we would just run out of money really, really quickly with the transfers. Yeah. Um, at Whittier, transfers were dealt with. They had lower rates of um, need being met. And then at University of Chicago, it was the same because University of Chicago has money. I mean, I you know, yeah. the financial yes. aid department there might not feel like it, but I mean, again, compared <laughs> to the institutions I'd worked at, I was like, woohoo, you guys are fine. Apply for apply for aid, like go for it. See what's see what's gonna happen. So it's really it depends. And I honestly would recommend that you directly ask the question of the admission office to start out with. Why not? Like they should know the policies of their schools and ethically they should be explaining them to you, which is something I certainly would have done whenever anybody asked me. Absolutely. So what do you think, Shannon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would ag I would agree with that. And it's just so much depends on individual schools. And um, I think you're right that kind of transfers tend to be kind of filling in that gaps in, in, in what the college needs. And sometimes what they need is, is people who are paying more money. Uh, mm -hmm. So very often there's not as much financial aid for transfer students. Uh, but yeah, I would definitely ask the school exactly like you recommend. Sometimes you can... Um, parse it out right on their website. Sometimes you will see exceptions, um, like we are need blind for, or we meet 100% demonstrated need for first time, first year domestic applicants. <laughs> and you have to figure out, does that apply to me? I think the big exceptions to either of these policies tend to be for uh, some, sometimes transfer students, sometimes students coming off a wait list, uh, sometimes international students are excluded. So just check the website or ask the school. Okay. Yeah. Sorry to wave at yep. you, but we, we're running out of time. So, all right. Thank you so much, Shannon. You're welcome. And thanks again to Cassie Hemstrom of UC Davis. Um, get ready for our show on July 2nd, when I'll be talking with the CEO of Beyond Book Smart, um, all about how students with executive functioning challenges around areas like focus and time management can thrive in high school and beyond. My other guests and I will also be discussing how to find scholarships based on major and how to create a summer schedule for rising seniors. If you want more information about how to handle the admission process in the time of COVID-19, please visit our um, blog page at blog.getintocollege.com. That's blog.getintocollege.com. You'll be able to search for a particular blogs and getting in show summaries there. The full archive is available to you. And last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.